Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right? Some people call this a ninth beatitude, but most commentators would say, no, this is just an additional commentary on what's coming in the life of the disciples. It shifts from the third person, blessed are those, to the second person, blessed are you. Jesus is speaking right to those at his feet at this time. It's not theoretical anymore. And he says, if you follow me, you will follow me into this. It's called the cross, the way of the cross. And so I'm going to start with verse 10 again, blessed are those who are persecuted. Let's do that. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile you. Say it with me. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then here's the command. Rejoice. Say it with me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Praise the Lord. Rejoice and be glad in the midst of conflict and opposition with the gospel. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And I believe he ends this very difficult saying, Having taken into account these eight qualities, as we grow in these eight qualities, we'll be able to do that, right? We'll be able to appropriately respond in conflict. Let's dig into this. Verse 8, we're going to look at the first one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This beatitude exalts Not a specific action, but an interior condition, a state of being, something that shall never pass away like poverty, mourning, hunger, thirst, or even the need to have mercy. We have here an eternal quality that already anticipates the life of the blessed united with God, fully united with God, that beatific vision of one day being face to face when the perfect comes, Paul says, right? That's the anticipation of that reality in the present. Three questions then. What is the heart? How do we become pure in heart? And how do we see God immortal, invisible, God only wise, as the hymn says, right? How do we see this invisible one? What is the heart? Poetically, it's often, it often refers to feelings, doesn't it? It often refers to the passions, the beating, the deep feelings for someone or something that's being described, apart from the mind, often. But when it comes to the biblical understanding of the heart, The heart involves IQ, EQ, and here's a new one. I just made it up. 
WQ. <laughs> IQ, the mind. EQ, the emotions, right? And then WQ would be the will turned towards the good. I'm willing the good. And my WQ is how much my will submits to the good, to the Lord, to holiness, to righteousness. It's that will that turns us various ways, right? All right. And so mind, will, and emotions make up the heart. There are three dimensions that are increasing or decreasing in our personality. Some have more IQ than EQ. Some have more EQ than IQ, right? Yeah. The heart is where saving faith is activated. Did you know that? Romans 10.10, Paul says, For with the heart, the entirety of our being, you see, with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, the body, a part of the body, with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And so it's very important. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart like a garden. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of your heart flows the issues of life. Out of your entire being, Jesus said, in this transformation that he's bringing, shall flow the issues of life, which are rivers of living water. And so out of our hearts, Jesus wants to flow the good water, the clean water, the pure water of the Holy Spirit, because we're temples of that Holy Spirit. He's dwelling inside of us. This pure one, this pure, just awesomely perfect, unblemished God himself is living inside of us. And the pure in heart will see God. Now, though the physical eyes are not going to be able to see God and live, right? God told Moses, no one can see me and live. The organ of seeing here is the heart. It's the heart rather than the physical eyes. It is what Paul meant in his prayer to the Ephesians. Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, illuminated, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That hope is face-to-face -face encounter where we shall see him face-to-face. -face. That's the hope of the Christian, you see. And so, blessed are the pure in heart, for the eyes of their heart are being increasingly illuminated, right? The eyes of the heart. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Yeah, it's what God wants to do is to illuminate our inner being, and now, for lack of time, I'm just going to use one of the best examples I've ever read about purity of heart. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. This comes from St. Francis in Spiritual Direction with Brother Leo. Maybe you've, you've heard this story. I'm just going to read it to you. I think it's awesome. One day, St. Francis and Brother Leo were walking down the road. Noticing Leo was depressed, Francis turned and asked, Leo, do you know what it means 
to be pure of heart? Of course, it means to have no sins, faults, or weaknesses to reproach myself for. Ah, said Francis, now I understand why you're sad. (laughs) We will always have something to reproach ourselves for. This is spiritual direction now, coming to Leo. Right, said Leo, that's why I despair. (laughs) That's why I despair of ever arriving at purity of heart. It'll never happen. Leo, listen carefully to me. Don't be so preoccupied with the purity of your heart. Turn and look at Jesus. Turn and look at Jesus. Admire him. Worship him. Rejoice that he is what he is. Your brother. Your brother, your friend, your Lord and Savior. That, little brother, is what it means to be pure of heart. The pure of heart shall see God. And once you've turned to Jesus, don't turn back. Don't turn back and look at yourself, he says. Don't wonder where you stand with him. The sadness of not being perfect, the discovery that you really are sinful, is a feeling much too human, even borders on idolatry. Focus your vision outside of yourself. Focus your vision outside of yourself on the beauty, graciousness, and compassion of Jesus Christ. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I may see the beauty, the graciousness, the compassion of Jesus Christ and be changed into his likeness. See, Focus your vision outside yourself on the beauty, graciousness, and compassion of Jesus, the pure of heart. Praise him. From sunrise to sundown, Leo. (laughs) Even when they feel broken and feeble and distracted, insecure and uncertain, they are able to release it into his peace. A heart like that is stripped and filled, stripped of self and filled with the fullness of God. It is enough that Jesus is Lord. After a long pause, Leo said, still, Francis, the Lord demands our effort and fidelity. No doubt about that, said Francis, but holiness is not a personal achievement. It's an emptiness you discover in yourself. Instead of resenting it, you accept it, and it becomes the free space where the Lord can create anew. To cry out, you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord. That is what it means to be pure of heart. And it doesn't come by your Herculean efforts and threadbare resolutions. Then how, asked Leo, how? Simply hoard nothing of yourself. Sweep the house clean. Sweep out even the addict, even the nagging, painful consciousness of your past. Except being shipwrecked. Poverty of spirit, you see. Except being shipwrecked. Renounce everything that is heavy. Even the weight of your sins, renounce them. See only the compassion, the infinite patience, and the tender love of Christ. Jesus is Lord. That suffices. Your guilt and reproach disappear into the nothingness of non-attention. You are no longer aware of yourself. Even the desire for holiness 
is transformed into a pure and simple desire for Jesus. Leo listened gravely as he walked along beside Francis. Step by step, he felt his heart grow lighter. And as profound peace flooded his soul. Mm. That's the story of St. Francis and Leo. If you'd like to read it again, you can find it in Brennan Manning's book, The Lion and the Lamb. Now, as this profound peace begins to capture our souls, flood our souls, we can become makers. The next verse, we can become peace makers because we've come to peace with everything that's fighting within. And we've discovered what it means in Christ to have purity of heart. And we began to fix our eyes on the invisible Jesus. You know, the book of Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Well, the problem with that is that you can't see him. He's invisible. But nonetheless, he's not talking about these eyes, you see. He's talking about the eyes of the heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9, for they shall be called sons of God, children of God, let's say. In this beatitude, Jesus is bestowing dignity on ordinary people to enter into his redemptive project of peacemaking, to become peacemakers, not peacekeepers, not those who are conflict avoidant. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Peacemakers. What sort of peace is he speaking of? This peace is not the absence of conflict, nor the absence of passion. Like the Stoics would say, the apatheia, the apathy is a state of being, right? To be apathetic, that's a Stoic quality. To be absent of passion, that's not what this is about. The Hebrew word shalom really captures it. It captures this idea, shalom, soundness, well-being, wholeness, fullness. Life as it should be and shall be evermore. That's shalom. How does shalom come about? The prophets described in their visions of new creation, such as Isaiah, when the lion will lie down with the lamb. When all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, that's ultimate shalom. That's ultimate peace, where the Prince of Peace is ruling over everything. And peace is the result. It's like storm be still out on the water, right? When Jesus calmed the storm, he's going to calm the entire cosmos. He's going to calm the entire cosmos with his shalom. Jesus is shalom. Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility between nations and ethnicities and races and genders and all the rest that we see warring against each other. For the Christian, for the church, Jesus must become our peace who has broken down the dividing walls. Jesus is the peacemaker. He is the peacemaker. Colossians 2, 19 and 20. In him 
all the fullness in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things throughout the world, throughout the cosmos, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus is the peacemaker. And though we have to work for peace, as those who are under the reign of the Prince of Peace, turning swords into plowshares on a global scale will have to wait until the Prince of Peace returns. In terms of passivism or subscribing to a just war theory, you can do that. But it will not bring this peace that Jesus is referring to. No temporal form of utopia bypassing the cross of Christ can produce this deep longing in the heart of every person. You see, in the heart of every person, it may be covered up and it may be expressing itself in violence. But at the core of that is this deep longing for peace and the Prince of Peace to come. Only Jesus dwelling within and ultimately returning to reign forever and ever will accomplish this. We heard it today in our New Testament reading, James 3. It's a reflection on the whole of the Beatitudes. James 3.17, I'll just pick up there. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. There it is. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And then it ends in verse 18. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. The righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. Peacemakers who sow in peace. This is what every Christian is called to become. A peacemaker who sows peace. And in that sowing, we will reap a harvest of righteousness. Amen? Amen. Romans 12, 14 through 21 tells us how to be peacemakers. This is how we do it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I think Paul's read the Sermon on the Mount somewhere, right? (laughs) Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn. With those who mourn. There it is. Blessed are those who mourn. You'll start seeing the Beatitudes all over the Bible now. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position, out of your class. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with everyone if it is possible as far as it depends on us live at peace with everyone do not take revenge my dear friends but leave room for God's wrath for it is written it is mine to avenge I will repay says the Lord on the contrary if your enemy is hungry make him a meal (laughs) if he is thirsty Take him out for a beer. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. It says, uh, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. I.e., take him out for a beer. 
reconciliation occurs over a nice glass of wine, right? It's a nice temptation during Lent, right? In this, you will heap burning coals on his head, out of Proverbs. And then it ends with this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. (laughs) Isn't that great counsel? To become peacemakers. Let's move on. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's really important. A lot of times persecution we experience and conflict because we're obnoxious with our faith, right? Because we use the word as a blunt tool instead of a life-giving means of truth. Sometimes we just bang people over it. Truth without love is dangerous and and can be abusive. It really can be without love because God is love who spoke the truth into existence, right? He is truth as well. The problem is when we separate truth and love, right? And we turn love into sentimentality where we have to love everything and affirm everything. No, that's void of truth. And so truth and love come together. Grace and truth. It says of Jesus, Jesus was full of grace and truth, right? Not just grace, but grace and truth. Faithfulness to grace, but faithfulness to truth as well. So blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're living in another realm besides this earthly existence. They're living in the reality of the eternal life that Jesus has already inaugurated inside of us. The eighth beatitude has led us to the way of the cross. Next Sunday will bring us into Palm Sunday to experience St. Matthew's account of how this beatitude works out in the life of Jesus as we hear the entire narrative of his crucifixion. That's what we're going to hear next week. And then we're headed to Holy Week. Notice how verse 10 uses the third person, those, and how this beatitude is repeated with the second person, you. It's a far more personalized, and I believe prophetic pronouncement to those who are listening to Jesus. Because some of those people will follow him all the way into Jerusalem to the cross. And be scared to death of persecution himself, themselves. Here Jesus is saying that he is the problem. You see that? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me. On my account, ESV. I'm the problem here. You wouldn't be having these problems if it weren't for me, Jesus is saying. You will find yourselves in difficult circumstances because of me. Because of me. It's a warning. It's also a command. Having come through this grid of the Beatitudes... 
Jesus can confidently say, rejoice. He can confidently say, rejoice and be glad in such a state, right? Falsely accused? I don't know. I, I've, if you experience false accusation, it's very difficult to endure. Fiery darts being thrown at you, being canceled, losing your job for a good reason. All kinds of things can occur. And Jesus is saying, on account of me. It's going to be on account of me, but it's going to be worth it. And because I know something you don't fully comprehend, rejoice. <laughs> rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in heaven. It begins even now. The heavenly realm is here in this room. Heaven is not up and down. There's no space. There's no time in that realm, right? It's here. The kingdom of God is among us and within us. Rejoice, for the presence of the king is here. Now, he's not giving collision insurance. <laughs> he's giving collision assurance. Have you ever thought, heard that? Yeah, I know. That was a heavy revy that came to me last night, Dylan. Nobody's ever said that before. I guarantee it. I didn't get that out of a commentary. I got it out of my wild, crazy mind. I'm going to say it again. I like it. In the context of being persecuted and the promise that it will give. He's not offering us collision insurance to get us out of it, to pay, you know, and just kind of recover. But he's, he's offering us collision assurance. Be assured, collisions will happen. Between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, if you're living in the light and walking in the light, some people won't be able to handle that who are living in the world and want nothing to do with the truth spoken in love, right? John 15, 18, Jesus says, these are the words of Jesus. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me first. If you were of the world, he's assuming they're not. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. If we want to be loved by the world, we will be in the world and of the world, Jesus is saying. And it will love you. You'll receive some affirmation. Instead, the world hates you. He's talking to disciples, right? The world hates you because you are not of the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. To be in the world, but to be out of the world. The paradox of living the Christ life in the midst of this crooked and perverted generation, as the Bible calls it, right? to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, to be bearers of, to have lovely feet. You know, Isaiah 58, how lovely are the feet of them who bring good news. He wants to make our feet lovely. We were doing it yesterday. We took a team of eight people out. We covered the neighborhood. We gave invitations to the church. We prayed for people. And we had people so thank us for just knocking on their door to give them an invitation to church, right? It was just so like simple and plain, saying, hey, we're a church in the neighborhood. We're right over here, and we would like to invite you to come and worship with us sometime. 
And sometimes it would be no thank you. And can we pray with you for anything? Oh, we had five people in our team that we prayed for. And then the last, next to the last person we prayed for. This this mama came out of her house and she hugged us with her arms and she said, you know what, I'm not afraid of you guys. You're, you're, you're exuding something else, you know, and praise the Lord because she is a Baptist woman who knows the word and she started preaching and praising God and I was just being like overcome with the intensity of love for Jesus. It was awesome. Charles was with me. It was amazing. It was amazing. And we just prophesied over her. I said, God has anointed you to preach the gospel to the poor. And you're preaching it right now. You're preaching it to me. The poor in spirit needs this edification that you're bringing me right now with the truth and the love and the passion all together. The pure in heart shall see God. I saw God yesterday in the life of that woman. Amen? Yes, that's how it works. We're living epistles seen in red of people, right? And that's how it works. And man, the closer we get to Jesus, when he's anointing us to be good news to the poor, he does the heavy lifting, right? He's working in the hearts of the person that he wants to speak to and he wants to connect with in that exchange. And life, life, life happens. Amen? Oh man, I want to go out and do it again. I'm going to go to her house though. I'm going back to her house. Whoa. Woo! So Paul gives us a promise and we'll close. Those who desire... Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, that's the hungering and the thirsting for righteousness of the Beatitudes, right? Will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Oh, whoa, wait, are you sure? Is that in the Greek manuscript? Come on, that doesn't make sense. That's 2 Timothy 3.12. But Paul knew the rest of the story, you see. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in the heavenly realm. For so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Can I call you to such a desire? Will you? Do you want that desire? Do you want that? Uh, wait, 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 wait. The way you put it, I'm not sure. I'm going to have to think about it, right? I want you to think about it. I want you to memorize it. I want you to get it inside. <laughs> I want to become like that woman that I met yesterday. That's my, that's my goal right now. I want to be like that. May I call you to such a desire to live a godly life? In Christ Jesus. This is the apostolic call, right? This is the scripture. This is not Michael. This is Paul. This is God calling us into his life and what his life is like. 
It begins with that desire. Touch my will, Lord. Touch my heart. Touch my mind. Touch my emotions. The promise is that we will be persecuted, but that's not the, that's not the only story. That's not, that's not the end of the story. Jesus will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. That's, that's a part of that story as well. Opposition, yes, but the church is being lifted up and edified throughout the world as we go forth with good news. How lovely are the feet of them who bring good news. Father, we just ask that these holy words